Welcome to this episode of Brilliant Brains and Beautiful Minds. I'm your host, Melanie Burnicle. Today, we're chatting with one of Australia's leading facelift plastic surgeons. Please welcome my guest, Jack Samaras. Thanks for having me, Melanie. Ah, thanks for joining us, Jack. Now, you are uh, one of Australia's top plastic surgeons, so I'm very grateful to you sparing the time today. How have you, like obviously at the moment, you guys, are you still on restraints with surgery? Yeah, there's still there's still restrictions. So we never closed our office at all. So we've been open nine to five throughout. Yeah. And we've been doing most consultations virtually via video. Yep. Uh, over the last week, we've started seeing patients face-to-face. And this week, we're doing 50-50. And uh-huh. in full transition to face-to-face next week. Of course, with all, you know, WHO, Australian guidelines with sanitization and things like that, which we were yep. doing anyway being a yeah. medical um, <laughs> but, but with the with this surgical space yeah we're not sure yet um the prime minister said on friday they're going from 50 to 75 to 100 percent allowance for elective surgery so we're just going to wait to see what new south wales i envisage june end of june we should be able to do most plastic surgery things that's very exciting yeah, <laughs> winter winter's always a good time to get some things done <laughs> probably the best time that's right <laughs> Don't worry, I've looked into it. <laughs> um, so just sort of let's go back a little bit and let's talk yeah. about your career evolution. When you were younger, did you see yourself in being a doctor, a plastic surgeon, or where did you see yourself headed? Yeah, no, I was one of the ones that always wanted to be a doctor. So when I was from age four or five, I wanted to be a doctor. So uh, <laughs> I didn't choose plastic surgery down the track. But yeah, when I was younger, partly was because... Um, I had a sister that was older than me that had an intellectual disability yep. and we're often at doctor's appointments with my parents. Um, and I like the way doctors just, you know, reassured us and things like that. When I went to the doctor, yeah. I kind of liked the reassurance. And I remember vividly once when I got in, got in, probably an immunization and I was so annoyed. And I said to the doctor, one day I'm going to become a doctor and I'm going to inject you. <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted to be a doctor from a young age. Oh, I used to play in my front veranda pretending I'm going to my clinic, going home. So, yeah. Wow. So you just saw it, made it happen, <laughs> which, which never happens that easily. Like how many years have you, did you study to be where you're at? Yeah. So after high school, I did four years of undergraduate. So three years plus an honours research degree. Then I did a one-year break and then I did four years of medicine. So nine years after high school. And then I've done another nine years before becoming a plastic surgeon. Wow. <laughs> too long, too long. Yeah. But, you know, I think when you, if, you know, if someone was to go under the knife, at least, you know, somebody has an amazing set of skills that you yeah, feel, you know, yeah. you're going to well, come out better the other end. hundred <laughs> yeah, percent. And then, so when you also, you have traveled and worked overseas as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And is that what led you more into the face side of plastic surgery or? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say probably. Yeah. Like, Part of the reason why face is, face is the most challenging, it's considered the doyen of plastic surgery. Um, and, and that's what kind of drew me to, I wanted like the challenge of responsibility of working on someone's face because you can't hide it. Yeah. Uh, so you have to do it well. Um, but yeah, you're right. So in, in, final year medi- in final year medical school, I went to New York 
during an, doing an elective in plastic surgery. And a lot of the guys in New York were doing facelifts and facial plastic surgery. And I kind of was excited and drawn to that. So yeah. um, that's kind of why I pushed myself to, towards face. And, and as you said, I wanted to do face plastic surgery from, a, from an intern that early, even before I started doing surgery. So I've always wanted to do that. And believe it or not, um, a lot of my colleagues, even to this day, believe it or not, are like, oh no, you shouldn't be doing face. You should only be doing a facelift when you're old enough to have one yourself or a lot older, which is just, you know, it's just typical medical bureaucracy and conservatism, really. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that sort of happens, I guess, in most industries, but it's nice to go, you know what, I've got the skill. Yeah. Like, I'm not waiting. Like, if I've got it, just let me yeah. do it. Yeah, exactly. Have you had that attitude, I guess, from when you were a kid? I think by the sounds of it, you, you know, you like a challenge, you want to win and you want to be the best. So mm -hmm. it's like, well, here I am. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been like that. And, and, and that's the thing I've only, you know, I've only ever considered medicine as a career. And then once I decided on plastic surgery, I kind of didn't really consider anything else. So yeah. almost, like, almost like just focused going for it. Yeah. You are seeing something that's not there. Yep. and being able to create that. Would you say that you're more, I guess, analytical or creative or somewhere? <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that. I think you have to kind of be a bit of both in plastic surgery, especially when you're doing the face and you're sculpting the nose or the, fa or, or the, or the face or the eye. Um, so you, you're absolutely right. You kind of have to visualize what's not there yet or what you could yeah. do, especially when you're doing a nose or an eye if you're reshaping it. Often anti-aging surgeries, you're restoring something that was there already. Like patients will, will show photos of what they look like 10 years ago or, or they'll demonstrate what they want, whereas it's hard to demonstrate what you want with a nose or an eye. You just get inspirational photos. So part of it is visualising what's possible and then to see if you can actually make it happen. Because sometimes you might not be able to. Like, for example, you know, I get many patients of Mediterranean descent um, that want a Nicole Kidman nose and it's just impossible. I mean, the skin quality is different. The texturing is different. The structure is different. You can get it close, but you just can't do it. So yeah, I guess that comes to one of the questions I had in mind, which was the consultation that you have with someone before yeah. doing a surgery. That communication must be so important. Do you find people's expectations can be quite unrealistic, and how do you manage that to yeah. be really honest with them? Yeah, you just, you just, exactly as you said, you just got to be honest. Like there's one thing, um, maybe not having the skill to do something, but then there's another thing of you just not, it's not possible to do. So you just got to make sure you identify that in your own skill set that you can do it. Um, and then if you can do it is, is what you're going to do, what the patient wants as well. So you've got to yeah. be on the same, they've got to be on the same page. So, um, and that's why the consultation, the first time I meet someone for facial surgery, it's up to an hour, sometimes longer, depending on how many questions they have. And then we yeah. always do a follow-up before we do surgery. And often once we book a surgery date, I see them once before. So a lot of the times I see someone three times before doing the surgery. Um, wow. and, and the first time, obviously it's almost information overload. Um, yeah. You have to go through things. We're going to go through the creative things of what's possible, but also the, the actual logistical medical things like, you know, downtime, potential risks. So it's, you know, there's a lot you have to cover. So we often need another consultation and sometimes a third. Yeah. Do you find, like, I know when I get excited about something, yeah. sometimes you're only hearing the information that you want to receive and you're missing yeah, it. Do people, would people like bring a buddy to a consultation so that someone else is absorbing or how would, how does it work? <laughs> everybody's different um i have some patients that come completely on their own some patients come with, with a buddy but they don't want the buddy to come into the consulting room but they yep. come to them for moral support to the clinic 
Um, and other, others bring more than one. They bring like three people with them. So um, you're absolutely right. And, and that's why we do a second consultation because sometimes you're only listening to what you want. So a lot of the time is, you know, they're visualizing what they want done to their nose or their face and they're not listening to the fact that they're going to have bruising or there's going to be downtime or there's a 1% chance that we might need to do revision surgery in the first 24 hours because there's, there's a, you know, there might be some bleeding or something. So that's why we, we try and demonstrate well, not demonstrate, but go over the consultation process many times by having more than one consult. We also provide written information as well to take home. So that way they can at least read what I've given them. Yeah. And we always make a follow-up appointment for them. So then yeah. they've got chances to ask more questions. Yeah, I think that would be really, really key because I know if I'm really excited or if I'm really scared, it's like I think I take in probably about half of the information. Yeah. Yeah. Would you consider like somebody's mental health in a in a consultation as well is there stuff that comes up to make sure people are doing things i guess everyone's going to have their own reasons for yeah. wanting a surgery but is that something that you would consider yeah 100 percent, and it's something you have to consider as a plastic surgeon um i think unfortunately in society up to 20 percent have some sort of depression or anxiety in, in a time of their life and that can influence the reason why they're having surgery um, body dysmorphia also comes up in plastic surgery. It's in, it's in probably about 10% of the population, which is still quite high. Um, mm. and, but of those patients with body dysmorphia will seek a plastic surgeon all the, almost up to 50% of the time. So you have to be aware of those things. And, but it comes down to having a rapport um, and actually asking questions. Like you just got to ask, why do you want your nose surgery? Why do you want a facelift? Or why do you want a breast augmentation? A lot of the time it's like, you, you just got to ask the reasons why, because I think they're just as important. As a, as a, an example, I've had a patient that wanted to have breast implants after breaking up with her boyfriend because the boyfriend, and, and I turned her away and I said, no, maybe just think about it a bit longer and before going ahead and doing it, because the reason they were doing it in that frame of mind was, was because something that had happened emotionally yeah. not, and they didn't, they didn't really want to do it. There was like a good trigger point in thinking, oh, yeah. maybe if I had done that, maybe this would yeah, still exactly. work. Or... And obviously it's not the reason. The reason is not, it's multitude. It's not the, the implant. Yeah. Whilst the implant might be relevant down the track or whatever, it's not right now. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is um, you just got to, you know, screening questions in terms of if they've got a realistic expectation, um, if they've had multiple plastic surgery or been for other opinions. Uh, I've given a lecture on body dysmorphia at Cosmeticon this year to, to identify those things. And sometimes yeah. you do miss things. And that's why it's important to do follow-up consultations because there are some red flags that come up that you can identify. Yeah. Um, and, and it's important. And, and we've got, I was part of a task force about two years ago now about trying to uncover um, those sort of things. Um, and, if, and it's not to say that if there's, some psychology involved, you can't have plastic surgery. So I've, I've had psychologists refer me people to have plastic surgery because it's the, because it will be beneficial for their, um, I guess their, their, their mental health. So, yeah. it's not, and, and so we, we just got to recognize what it is and, and if necessary, be open and, and have a relationship with the patient that you can say, Hey Mel, look, I'm happy to do your operation, but look, I think you should maybe see this person first, just to discuss yeah. the reasons for it. And then, then we'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it's really important. I think I, like for me, like I've had a couple of things done, like with my pigmentation and it was something that really bothered me and yeah. other people like, Oh, I don't notice it. I'm like, I don't care if you notice it. Yeah, it's it's something you. that was me. And look, you know, I still, it's not 100% perfect, but I'm happy yeah. with where it's at in comparison. Yeah. And so it's something that I wanted to make me feel better 
And it's not that I didn't see myself as beautiful and it's not that I don't love myself. You know, I'm quite happy with the human I am. But that for me was just something that I started covering heavy with makeup and then I was starting to look older and I'm like, ah. <laughs> and so I thought, no, this is something I want to do for me. And I did the full on laser, you know, yep. on my face. And, you know, I think it's so important that you do things for you if that's what feels right. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, plastic surgery is a personal choice. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately in society, and it's not just now, people always judge people. Um, mm. And a lot of my patients, and I'm uh, um, like, you know, they feel sometimes alone in the plastic surgery journey because they can't even tell their best friend or their girlfriend because if you get judged, it's like, oh, you don't need your nose done or you don't need this. But and, and and they just don't understand it from their patient's point of view. And a lot of people are nice as well. Some people might have an obvious nose that's, you know, you know, way too large for their face. And people are like, oh, you don't need your nose done. And it's like, well, it's, it's a personal choice that that person has to do. You know, it's yeah. like, like a, it's also like children. Like for example, it happens in kids as well. Like some young girls don't wear their hair up because they've got prominent ears at school. Yeah. Um, and they don't want to get teased. And, and often I do five to seven year olds um, before that teasing age, I guess, yeah. um, in the ears back. So, um, you know, it's not always about like pure cosmetic surgery. It's just little things that you want to, that you want to yeah. repair on your face just to kind of, I guess, blend in or to society. And it is, it's a personal choice. Like no one can, can understand it except you. Yeah. Do you find that people still really are shying away from being open about any surgery? Yeah. Look, in, in the sort of work that I do on a face, definitely 100%. Like probably every single one of my facelift patients, except for maybe probably 5% of them, don't want anyone else to know they've had a facelift. Um, wow. Sometimes it's not even their sister. Sometimes they're happy with their own family to know, but no one else. Um, yep. You know, it's just... It's, it really is still taboo. Like with rhinoplasty surgery, it really depends. I'd say it's 50-50. A lot of the time they're happy to talk about it. And some patients would send me photos or comment on a pic that I put on Instagram and say, yep, that's my nose. I'm so glad you did it. Whereas yep. others just don't want anyone else to know. Um, I think with body surgery, people are a little bit more open about it, especially breast augmentation. But even with body, even though I don't do a lot, even with mums having um, tummy tucks, for example, it's taboo as well. It's like, you know, why did you do that to yourself? It's a beautiful thing having a baby. You should keep the, not the, I guess, the, the, um, the, the, uh, the natural the, the natural body kind of collateral damage from a baby. Because it is a beautiful thing. Isn't it? Of course it's a beautiful thing. But, you know, you've got the baby as well. And, and ultimately yeah. it's a mother's choice. I mean, as plastic surgeons, we don't go out to a market and, 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 and a billboard and say, come and have a tummy tuck or come and have a facelift. But yeah. you're not that. standing outside the preschool going, so come, come on. Come to us for their own confidence. We don't go out there asking for it. So yeah. uh, obviously we have, a, we, have a, we have an image in society and, and, we, and we market just for those patients mm. looking for that service, but we don't go and seek people f to do it. So, but yeah, unfortunately it's very taboo. It's like, and, and that's part of the problem with um, the roller coaster journey because you need emotional support when you have plastic surgery. Mm. A lot of, especially my facelift patients, they just don't have that because they keep it so secretive. So in the first two or three weeks, wear their emotional support. Like they, they, they come to our clinic multiple times a week and we're the ones on, on the other end of the phone all the time because they just don't want to talk to someone else. Like I've had many patients that, for example, would just stay in a hotel for a week. Wow. Me and they just don't want to go home while they're recovering. One thing, so you specialize in sort of facelift, your eyelids and the rhinoplasty. Yeah. Now, I'm totally addicted to watching your Instagram and sometimes like I'm flicking through it first thing and morning, I'm like, oh, crap, I wasn't prepared for the surgery part. <laughs> you know, sometimes but, I throw one in every now and then. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be like, first thing in the morning, oh, good. <laughs> but I always find 
what you do in the eye area is yeah. amazing because so many people they age so yeah. much through here and they have like all that excess skin and it just blows my mind is that um that procedure like how painful is something like that yeah great question like what, what happens is you have discomfort for probably the first two days afterward okay. Um, and we, and you know, my anesthetist, um, gives, subscribes all the pain relief, prescribes all the pain relief. And you're actually quite good after two or three days, you're just needing Panadol and that's it. So it's not as painful as you think. What happens is your eyes are quite dry after surgery and a little bit blurry because we use a lot of eye drops because you can imagine surgical light in your eye while we're operating. So they tend to dry out a lot. So we recommend eye drop before surgery and after. And for that reason, the, the eye drops we use moisten the eyes so much you get a bit of blurred vision. So apart from a bit of blurred vision and discomfort, it's actually not that painful. Wow. Isn't it funny? Because you just think the eye is sensitive, yeah. but the fact that the pain's done in two days, that, that's better than wisdom teeth. <laughs> totally. And yeah, much much better looking after it as well. What would you'll, you? You'll still be bruised for a good week to two weeks, but yeah, look amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. After that, yeah, I yeah. just find those results really um, give people back that youthful appearance. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Like if you if there's one operation that's relatively straightforward on the face for anti aging, it's it's eyelid surgery. Jack, what would you say like? throughout people's ages what's the most common surgery say for people 30s 40s 50s 60s like in each demographic look i would say probably um if, you, if you're looking at 30s you're probably looking at for for the face it's more rhinoplasty surgery yeah. um 40s is the same thing rhinoplasty surgery in the 40s you'd start getting people asking for a mini lift or a short scar facelift or a ponytail lift um so what's a ponytail lift what have i been missing out on uh, well, ponytail lift is it's 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 a new buzzword but it's it's not that new really it's basically what you're doing with a ponytail lift is you're lifting the upper part of the face so oh. the face lift often lifts this part so you're lifting the upper part so you're lifting the eyebrow the and the cheekbone through an incision in the hairline and it creates the effect as in your as if your hair was in a ponytail to pull the upper part of your face Oh, wow. So that's when, so the short scar or the lower would yeah. do, if you're not ready for the full facelift, that's yeah. where you can actually... Tailor it, yeah. So wow. you, the ponytail is more for the upper. It's basically like a brow lift with pushing a little bit more on the, on the cheek, whereas yep. the short scar is more for the lower face. Yes, and I've seen different. those ones. Yeah, I know. You love those ones. <laughs> I love them. I can't com I comment because I find for me, because we do get it, like we do a Botox through here, yeah. and that's kind of enough for me through there. But I do yep. like see when you do this, like how much that yep. just sort of really gives people that youthful. And yeah, does, do, yeah. how do you do that neck lift? Because like, yeah, well, I stand well, there and you have a muscle here. You have yeah. a muscle that kind of blends this way called the platysma. And yep. when you're doing a short scar, what you're doing is you're suturing, you're, you're opening the muscle here and you're suturing the muscle to the back of the scalp like a hammock. And that's why you're tightening the neck. Ah. When you do a formal neck lift, like in an older person that's got a double chin or, or very loose skin, then you're going, you're making an incision here and also tightening the muscle like a double breasted suit in the front as well. Oh, um, wow. You're removing the excess skin. But as part of a short scar mini lift, then you're just tightening it from the side. So, and I know this might sound a bit silly, but if you were to do sort of like a, um, a short scar or a ponytail, like you get to, you know, that could get you through your fifties and, you know, looking great. Yep. And then in you, if you got to the sixties and or seventies and you thought, okay, I want to kind of do a bit yep. more. Can you move into? Yeah, you can like, absolutely. Like, as you were asking before, like in your thirties, forties, fifties, you can do short scar or ponytail or a combination of both. 
Um, yeah. You can do a short scar facelift every seven or 10 years. When I was in New York working with a guy called Cheryl Aston, who did Audrey Hepburn's facelift, we operated on someone who was 65 and she looked like she was 39 or something. And he had just basically lifted her face like mini lifts every seven years. She used to fly in from, I think, I can't remember if she was from either like Florida or North Carolina. She used to fly in and just get like a little short scar lift every seven years. And he had operated on her like multiple times. So you can do it that way. You can just do yeah. little bits as you go. Or you could just have a, like, oh, at the same time, I've done a full face and neck lift on someone as young as 46 as well. Really? Uh, but had they, were they aged quite heavily for their age? Or yeah, they not? were. They were aged um, heavily for their age. And, and part of the reason was they were pretty much a fitness fanatic. So they lost a lot of their facial volume. Um, yeah. And they had a lot of skeletal facial aging. So the best thing was to lift everything. Um, but um, yeah, as you say, when you're 50, 60, then it's probably better to do a full face neck lift. You just get a yeah. better result. But a lot of my patients don't want the downtime or don't want the investment to do a full face neck lift, even when they're 60. So you still can do a mini lift and they still look quite good. You still get a good result. Um, and then let's talk about Artiste, which is your, um, yeah, your baby, basically. Yeah. So tell me, you know, when did you think it was the right time to sort of say, okay, I'm ready to go out. This is my business yeah. and this is us. Yeah, I guess it was, um, like even from a child, like I was talking about before, I was growing up pretending I was going to my own clinic. So I, I didn't think of it as a business, but I thought, yeah, I, was, I wanted to have my own clinic. I wanted to work for myself. And, yeah. and I guess having like almost 18, 19 years, whatever it is in the system of, you know, training as a doctor, working in hospitals, working for other people. Then finally, when I went to New York for my fellowship in plastic, in face plastic surgery, it was finally I had the time to just relax and, and just, kind of just be my own thoughts and no longer I had to answer to anyone like I was there learning how to do things but I didn't have to really answer to anyone I was kind of um, you know reflective on where I've got in life I was like wow I'm 34 now this was back in 2013 or I was turning 35 and I was like wow Um, I can't believe it's been 35 what am I going what's the next step now I've done all my exams I'm a plastic surgeon I'm learning how to do facelifts what's next and it was like I had job offers to come and join other clinics while I was away and I was like no, I can't. I just got to, I've always wanted to do my own brand and business. I just, yeah. I just deep dived into it. And while I was overseas in Paris and New York, I was right. I wrote content for my website and the name Artiste, I wanted to choose a name that wasn't my name because I, I saw it as something bigger um, yeah. because I'm looking, you know, for other doctors to work with me. And if I called it Dr. Jack Zumaras, like, you know, my yeah. ego is not that big. It doesn't need to be called me, you know? So I wanted yeah. to name it a name that could go anywhere. Um, and I guess the name Artiste, Stuck because it was elegant, sophisticated. It's the French word for artist, and and in plastic surgery, that's what you're doing. You're sculpting something. You're creating something. So yeah, that's how the name artiste happened. So artiste plastic surgery. Yeah, oh, I love it. And then, so what key messaging? Like when you were building your brand, and obviously yeah. you know you've been working in your industry. So when building your brand, what were the key messages behind your brand when you're building it? That did you want to make sure that people, you know, were synonymous with your brand? Yeah. Well, in the beginning, I guess it was more just um, just communicating the fact that I was a plastic surgeon who had specific training in facelifts um, yeah. from New York and Paris. So that was all the messaging. In terms of like having the brand or having the business, you know, as a doctor, I had no idea about business, no idea about actual branding. So it was kind of just going into it. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got, you've got a receptionist to pay, you've got fit out to pay out, and you just don't think about those things. But I guess that's what makes it kind of exciting as well. You just 
follow your passion. So you learn you learn like really quickly how to run a business or, or over mm. two years by making a lot of mistakes. But I guess the branding now is all about elegance, sophistication, you know, minimalistic if you want it, minimalistic, but, you know, less is more like creating like great um, results with getting people wondering if you've had surgery or not. So the branding yeah. now is just all high-end, elegant, sophistication, um, you know, and, and to stand out in a right way, not in a wrong way. Yeah. Can I, you sort of touched on something, and I think this crosses to so many people that do follow me across my socials as well, is that there are a lot of creatives and a lot of yeah. people that have a craft and yeah. they're extremely good at that craft, whether they're makeup artists, hairstylists, or someone that works in beauty or, you know, performers. But then all of a sudden you have your own business. <laughs> exactly. And like what you said, you don't have those skills until you need them. Did yep. you then start getting into it and think, holy crap, I now need to go and understand how this yeah. functions and to be able to be successful in business and at your craft? Yeah, 100%. Well, you kind of like look at it. And, and for me, the, the point, the turning point was um, all of a sudden thinking, you know, I'm spending all this money on marketing and, and, and people doing some advertising for you or, or some branding or brochure development, and I'm not getting a return on investment. And then you break down your numbers and you're thinking, you know, I'm not doing that well. What's going on? Um, I thought plastic surgeons made money. You know what I mean? Like, you know, not that you do it for those reasons, but, but then you think to yourself, okay, let's, let's read some books and work out how to work things. And, and then you just begin to realize that, you know what? you're not good at marketing or you're not good at that. Let's get someone that's good at it. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, as doctors, we fall for that. I'm a, I'm a medical specialist marketing person, but what that means is I'm going to charge you 10 times the amount and deliver 10 times less the results, unfortunately. So mm. I'm just going to educate yourself as a business owner. And you can still be like, for example, like I've had other plastic surgeons work for me and, and work part-time, but I'm still the, the sole person who's doing the craft but then I've got other people doing other aspects of the business that are better than me at business, but you just got to have enough understanding to be able to manage it. Yeah. Uh, that you, so you're not getting ripped off and know where the business is going. So, you know, basically almost like doing a mini MBA, I guess, for your own business. Yeah. I think, you know, how many years or lot did you say you studied to be a plastic surgeon? Yeah. Like 19 years or eight. Yeah. I think so. Eight, nine, 17 years. Yeah. Too long. Yeah. Too long. And then, but to do all of that and to know how much work you've got to be putting in yeah. to be, a specialist and then people like us will go into opening a business and just go oh okay you yeah, know no, without having that skill but you know you do learn along the way but you do, yeah you're constantly learning to yeah, evolve you're constantly learning and obviously you know this these current circumstances we're in throws another spanner into works and <laughs> and um you just gotta get set up in terms of what to do and what you're doing so um yeah you, you gotta continue to evolve and continue to learn and, and the one thing is, is you just gotta um I guess the biggest thing if I would give advice to myself five years ago is just to learn from people that, and I think I've got this advice from someone else is good. Get business advice from someone that's probably a little bit higher in terms of your business. So don't take advice from people whose business is smaller than yours, like whose business is a little bit higher and has been through it with you. So they can offer good advice because whilst I learned a lot, I also like wasted a lot of money by learning. <laughs> whereas I could have actually learned, and invested in myself to learn, which I have done, but you know, yeah. I've the hard way. And, and, and this is why I like helping my fellow doctors in terms of um, what they're doing with SEO and things like a lot of the times they call me and, you know, a colleague of mine, Johnny, who's called me and asked yes. how much should I spend on SEO or should I do Google AdWords here? And even with other 
And I go, no, they're ripping you off doing that. You know, well, these yeah. are the questions to ask. So it's good. I'd like to give that because I don't want people to get ripped off. And, and in business, it's hard enough as it is. You don't, you don't want to get ripped off. So it's, it's important to, um, to stand by your own philosophy, your brand and, and work your business properly as well. Yeah, I think that's very good advice. Now you did kind of just sort of say you made a few mistakes in the beginning. Yeah. Is there um is there a mistake or anything that you'd be happy to sort of or a mistake um that you'd sort of be happy to sort of chat about that could potentially stop someone else from going through the same thing or some, tell me something that you learnt that so I guess learning from the success and failure, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess it's hard to say. I guess probably what I what I would have done is. In the beginning, I probably would have done um, a little bit more business reading before setting up. Um, and what I mean by that, even just negotiating your lease, things like that, um, like, you know, don't sign any contracts, don't sign any heads of agreement, work out what you're entitled to, um, to, to set up a space. But probably in the beginning, and, you, and we've got the advantage of doing it now, is, is before deep diving into getting a space, is you can, you can probably sublease something in the beginning. Um, who knows what's going to happen with COVID now, but there's a lot of, you know, renter spaces for work. It's a little bit difficult in the medical space, but there's a lot of medical clinics where you can like rent a room, for example. So you can run your business out of that until you get an idea of how, how what's working, what's not working before, you know, making the big decision about getting your own premises and fitting it out. Cause that's obviously ties up a lot of capital and things like that. I would yeah. say that's probably good advice. Like just take your time with setting it up. Um, and also, like, dream big. I think it's good to dream big in the beginning. Like, I, but, you know, your dreams always change as well. But there's nothing wrong with dreaming big and just work out how to get there, I guess. Yeah. What would you say the best advice is that you've ever been given, whether it's business or within your craft? Oh, yeah, good question. I think <laughs> in terms of with my craft plastic surgery, it's like, especially when we're training as a plastic surgeon, is treat every operation you do with the utmost respect, even if it's something, something as simple as, you know, injecting Botox or taking a skin cancer out, like treat it as if you're doing a facelift on any, on, on anyone. And that way your standard is very high. That's probably the one advice in my craft. Um, yeah. The other advice in my craft, which I think is a really good one is also to train the people under you to be better than yeah. you. And then that way you're leaving your craft always, it's going to go up. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because you're training people to be better than you. So therefore, so just commit escalate. So that's what I would say from a craft point of view. From a business point of view, I would say, I'm just trying to think. From a business point of view, it probably would be surround yourself with good people. Like, you know, you, you learn and as your business grows, you need to change people. So you need to just keep employing your A people. Your A people might be different when you start your business compared to three years time. Um, yeah. And that's what I was saying before in terms of like try and get advice from people that are uh, at a stage of business ahead of you um, and have been through what you're going through because they can offer real salient advice. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, very good advice. <laughs> um, what do you do to sort of give back to the community? Like you just mentioned education. Yeah. Is that something that you are really strong like you know, I love doing enough. it. Like I love, I love teaching. Um, and it, and it's good because it reminds me of when I was younger, um, who was being taught, who being taught by plastic surgeons or other doctors. And, and I really resonated with them. And even today I've got so much respect for them. And, and sometimes you can see people that were like you when you were younger. Um, and it's kind of exciting as well. And you can see people that yeah. are really super keen and, and, and I like that interaction because it's um, you give them confidence because a lot of the time, it's not just medicine in society. We like knocking people down. 
is like, oh, you've got a long way to go, lass. Because I got a lot of that as well, wanting to be a plastic surgeon or a doctor. I was like, oh, you might not become a doctor. You might not become a plastic surgeon. There's a lot of like knocking on the head. Oh, you might not do this. A lot of negativity. So it's good to like then come across someone who encourages you to do it. So I like giving that encouragement back because we're human beings. We're capable of anything. That's right. And everyone is capable of anything they want once you put your mind to it and focus. So I love teaching. So I'm, I'm in terms of like formal teaching qualification, I'm like senior lecturer at the university of Sydney and Wollongong. So all that means is I do usually once or twice a year, I do examinations for the university of Sydney and I have people follow me um, from the university of Wollongong. So they come and do an internship with me at least once a year. So I teach that from like, that's like an actual structured teaching. Yep. And then of course, like anecdotally, like I teach medical students all the time. They come and watch me operate. Um, nursing staff as well. Um, as I said, I was involved in pilot studies um, in plastic surgery just to advance our specialty in general in terms yeah. of diagnosing um, psychology and mental health issues in plastic surgery patients. So from that point of view, um, we've given back. Obviously, research is important. Yeah. Um, the importance of scientific research. Like I present at national, international conferences because the one thing in plastic surgery is every time I do an operation, believe it or not, I've never been 100% happy with any operation I've done. <laughs> I always look back and look back and go, I could have done better there. I could have done better because you just always want to push yourself to do the perfect yeah. operation. You know what I mean? So you just got to reflect and criticize yourself to get better. Yeah. Um, and so it's always self-reflection. And that's what research um, is important and presenting on an international stage. Um, so yeah, so I've always wanted. And the other exciting thing I'm doing, Mel, which I haven't really told anyone, is I'm actually writing a book now. Oh, uh, I love it. On my, on my journey. I haven't named it yet. I haven't got a title yet, but it's basically my journey from a youngster to a plastic surgeon and then yeah. a, little bit of, a little bit about the history of why people get facelifts and why people get plastic surgery. Oh, I love that. I look yeah. forward to reading that. You have to make sure we let it know when we're out. We'll put it up on the oh, website. Really yeah. I think it's a nice way to see it because you see it from you know, a doctor's point of view, whereas yeah. you know, as you know, friends and things, I might chat with like women and things about different little bits that I might want to get done. <laughs> I'm definitely not shy about it. And, you know. You're not shy, which is good. But it's funny you say that because if I'm at a party or at a social gathering, people are quite happy to come and chat to me in a group about plastic surgery, what you do. But as soon as it comes to a point where they're actually seriously considering doing it, then yep. they don't want to talk about it to anyone, which is wow. really interesting. Yeah. yeah, I still find that really... Yeah, I think I've probably talked too much in general, but <laughs> hence why we're doing an interview series. That's why we're doing an interview, yeah. <laughs> Who knows, in oh. 20 years' time, we might be doing your facelift live on Zoom. 20 years? I'm not waiting that long. <laughs> you <laughs> I'm ready for the short skirt. I used to always do this with my grandma. We used to yep. stand there in the mirror and pull our faces back. Well, she used to do it a whole lot more than I did, but she's like, imagine this. And I've never stopped doing that, <laughs> as silly as it sounds. Um, Jack, this has been amazing and really insightful. Um, just one more thing. Can I ask, the, you're the chairman of the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons as well? Yeah, the New South Wales Division, yeah. <laughs> Underachiever. Underachiever. <laughs> But can I just say, is there one thing that you find people sort of have a common fear about plastic surgery? Is that because some you've heard so many bad things in the media, yep. and is that why it's important yeah. for you to be on a board that represents the quality of surgeons? Is that yeah, it's that as well. It's also to provide balance to um what you, because in plastic surgery, like there's people doing cosmetic aesthetic surgery, which I do the majority of. There's you know there's reconstructive craniofacial surgery, hand surgery cancer surgery so it's good so i'm basically providing the aesthetic balance to that society 
Yeah. Um, and it's also, like you said, as a public advocacy, it's important for people to know that, you know, a lot of the, not all clinics are equal. So not everyone doing cosmetic surgery is a plastic surgeon, which is a gold standard. So just to provide that education and safety for the community. If, um, like for people who weren't aware, like, yeah. like I come to you just for Botox because yeah. for me, that's important. This is my face. Yeah. So I care about who does that. And I would prefer to pay someone with your level of experience to ensure yeah. that I get it right. But what would people be looking for if they either wanted to go further than Botox and things yeah. like that? What are they looking for when they look for a good plastic surgeon? Like what qualifications? Well, like, like they're looking for someone like you've got to be, you have got to have FRACS by your name, which means you're, you're a fellow of the Royal Australian College of Surgeons, which guarantees your minimum 17 years of study and qualification. And then outside of that, if you're looking for, um, you know, plastic surgery, you've got to be a plastic surgeon, obviously. There's other surgeons that do some plastic surgery operations like breast surgery, breast surgeons, um, ENT surgeons do rhinoplasty and some facelifts, but a plastic surgeon is the only one that's trained in aesthetics with principles. But then, then you've got to look further than that and say, okay, so what sort of procedure does my plastic surgeon do? And have they gone overseas to perfect their technique and obviously mm. look at the before and after gallery as well because the standard in australia is really high so as long as you choose a plastic surgeon then the standard's high but then you've got to choose okay what sort of plastic surgeon is going to be best for me so obviously um you know doing a rhinoplasty or a facelift or eyelid surgery is totally my domain um just like um if you're going you know you're just going to a uh, it's hard for me to, to put it i don't want to like um, minimize the importance of it. But for example, if you're going to go to a tire shop for your car, you're going to get tires there. You're not going to get something for your engine, for example, you know, so <laughs> even though the mechanic might know about engines, like it's that sort of thing, just that sub-specialization to just yeah. make sure you go to a specialist, you know? Yeah. And so I guess doing your research, like yeah. really do your research. Exactly. And do your research, look at before and after gallery, look at reviews. Um, yeah. And also just attend consultations. Like often I recommend patients attend more than one consultation, see two different doctors um, uh, and things yeah. like that. Is it important as well for somebody, if they were considering surgery, that they feel that they can communicate and be really comfortable with the person yeah, doing the surgery. And you, and you have to, you have to, because as a doctor, sometimes it's a pride thing, but I can sometimes sense when a patient wants to tell me something that they might be too embarrassed to tell me. And you've got to have the, um, you just got to have the humility as a surgeon, especially when I first started my practice, like, oh, you're not quite happy with that. Or just be honest with you. I'm happy to like, you know, revise it for you, for example, because at the end of the day, medicine is not black and white. It's gray. So um, sometimes you need to do something twice like the revision rate is quite low it's like under five percent but you've got to have the humility as a doctor to say okay you're not quite happy with your result let's do it until you're happy just like if you yeah. to get someone to put a new kitchen in your kitchen you're not happy with it you tell the builder to redo it or whatever yeah it's give the same a tweak. <laughs> no, it, it, you just give it a little tweak and there's nothing wrong with that so if you haven't got a rapport with a surgeon to do that and unfortunately a lot of doctors lack personal communication skills because they're so just smart in what they do um, yep. and they haven't got that rapport with someone. So you've got to be comfortable with someone who's operating on you as well. Yeah. a hundred percent agree. Yeah. It's that comfort factor and everything yeah. I think needs to come together. Yeah. So yeah. And that's why one of our values in the artistic plastic surgery is we're basically going to keep going until you're happy as the patient, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a nice thing. Like, you know, at the end of the day, the client's your priority and 100%. achieving the right result yeah, you know, right. works for everybody. Yeah. Cool. This has been amazing. There's lots of food for thought and I'm just going to go and do this in the mirror just for fun for a bit longer. <laughs> I know, but now I don't think I need that. I just need that. No, you don't need that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, never boring in, in my world. I think in the last couple of months, yeah, actually the amount of people I've spoken to who've actually contacted me and asked me for even skincare advice. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone's been at home staring at themselves in the mirror for too long. And I've had so many people say, can you give me some advice on some good skincare? Can you give me some advice on this? Or, you know, because they're starting just to feel it. Whereas I think when you're so busy at work and you're going from one thing to another all the time, you don't see it as much. But a few people I've had sort of been, you know, and I've been doing the same thing as well. I was actually (laughs) thought my natural blonde was coming through and it wasn't grey for about two days. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Jack Zamaris, thank you so much for joining us on Brilliant Brains and Beautiful Minds. (laughs) My pleasure, Mel. It's been a pleasure to um, talk to you and and so happy that you invited me on. It's been fun. Thank you. And thanks for just being honest with us about, you know, your business and also, um, yeah, like what people need to look for. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Head on over to beautybossbusiness.com for all the links from today's episode. Thanks for joining us on Brilliant Brains and Beautiful Minds. Until next time.